0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: The
2: most famous call, of course, was the one from Barbara Olson to Ted Olson. Ted Olson was the uh, Solicitor General for the Department of Justice. He was very, very important. He was the guy who argued in front of the Supreme Court that the uh, Florida recount should be stopped. He got the Supreme Court to uh, stop the recount, and so Bush and Cheney uh, became president and vice president, not necessarily in that order. Uh, so on the morning of 9-11, he reported that uh, he had gotten a phone call from his wife, Barbara, who was on Flight 77. Get to the salary report, the FBI turned in. It does mention Barbara Olson when it gets to Flight 77. And here's what it says. Barbara Olson, one attempted call, unconnected, zero seconds. Now, Ted had said she called twice. They talked for about a minute each time. Should this not have been a screaming headline in all of our newspapers, FBI says story told by former Department of Justice, Solicitor General. See, the FBI is part of the Department of Justice. His story, it's not
0: true. It didn't happen. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. David Ray Griffin, with an introduction by Michelle Chosadovsky. Today's show, Did Muslims Attack the United States of America on 9-11? 21 Reasons Why the Official Story is False. Today's program is Part 1. David Ray Griffin is an author, theologian, and lecturer. For the past several years, he has committed himself to exposing the fraud of the official story of the attacks of September 11, 2001. Dr. Griffin provides multiple evidence to demonstrate that the official explanation is not credible. Today's program is a lecture delivered in Montreal, Quebec, Canada on June 21, 2008 chaired by Canadian economist and director of the Centre for Research on Globalisation, Michel Chosodovsky, and hosted by Montreal 9-11 Truth. We begin with an introduction by Michel Chosodovsky. Great pleasure in
3: introducing our speaker tonight, um, David Ray Griffin, who with tremendous modesty a sense of justice and ethics and a commitment to the truth, combined with painstaking research into all the various innuendos of this tragic event of 9-11, has has now come up with a fourth book, which uh, uh, is addressed to the members of the U.S. Congress and, and the media. Um, I think what is disturbing in uh, our understanding of 9-11 is the extent to which both at the official level, namely politicians, governments, but but also non-governmental organizations, as well as civil society organizations, anti-war movement, that... One denies uh, certain occurrences, one affirms certain occurrences, when uh, in fact all the evidence points to the contrary. And uh, the 9-11 narrative, as uh, contained in the the 9-11 commission report, is a fabrication, it's a fabrication. There may be certain elements of truth in there, but when you look at the whole document, and when you look at the media interpretations, and you start to investigate, and then you start looking at Building Seven, which is reported by the BBC and CNN twenty minutes before it actually occurs, and you see the, you see the reporter in front of the building saying, "Well," which in, which implies that there was foreknowledge of that event. Then when you start to confront the issue of of the narrative regarding what happened on the planes with the, the cell phone conversations for 31,000 feet when everybody knows that you can't make a call above 8,000 feet at least. We've tried when we're in, on the aircraft and so on and so forth. The, the lies are so extensive. I think that when, when we started up with this invest, when we started up shortly after 9-11, we were extremely cautious in, in the statements we we made, but now we can say uh, that this is perhaps the biggest lie in U.S. history, and it, it is it is not that it's not a standalone lie. It's a lie which is the pillar of the national security doctrine. It's the pillar of the military agenda in the in the Middle East. Uh, because every single um, action, political action, whether it's in in strategic, military, foreign policy, domestic policy, national security, emergency procedures, always rests on the notion that we have to defend against this elusive outside enemy, Osama Bin Laden, who in any event is a creation of the CIA, known and documented, okay? And known and documented by Senate reports and by uh, by FBI reports and so on and so forth. So that the debunking of the lie is 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 now something much more straightforward to what it was in the early let's say in, let's say in late September of two thousand and one. But I I like to recall briefly uh, what happened on that day. Um, and David David Ray Griffin will will elaborate on on the whole process, but if you recall, uh, already at 11 o'clock in the morning, they had virtually, they said, well, absolutely certain Bin Laden is behind it, Al-Qaeda, blah, 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 okay? The investigation hadn't even been conducted by the FBI, and the FBI to this date denies that, in fact, Osama had anything to do with it. the war cabinet met in the afternoon and in the evening uh, the, war, the war on Afghanistan had been declared on the basis of retribution against those sponsors of the 9-11 attacks. And within a 24-hour period, NATO uh, invoking Article 5 of its constitution, um, which stipulates that an attack on one of its members is an attack on all of its members. Then also declared war on Afghanistan. Now, in in Canada, we've totally forgotten the the rationale for Canadian involvement in Afghanistan. Okay, Where we we discuss peacekeeping and rebuilding and so on. But ultimately, it's Article Five of the NATO constitution which says, you know, we have to stand by the United States. But Bear in mind that NATO took that decision even at the same time as, as the White House, they, they took it on this, almost on the same day, and then on the 7th of October, they, the war was initiated. Now, bear with me, I don't know how many months the, the 9-11 Truth uh, Movement in Montreal has been preparing this event, um, but uh, the war in Afghanistan was prepared in three weeks, believe it, no. A war takes one takes at least a year to prepare. A large-scale theater operation, and the decision to go to war usually is a comp- very complex decision. As we see unfolding events with regard to Iran, that war was already in that those war plans were already in the pipeline. Well before 9/11, uh, the declaration of war on in the evening of 9/11. Uh, was there to trigger something which was already in the pipeline. So that, uh, and then we were led to believe that there wasn't a single analyst of military and strategic affairs and there are numerous of, n- numbers of those who had the honesty to say, well, you know, you don't prepare war in three weeks. Okay? Nobody prepares anything, not even a conference in three weeks. So, um, but that's, th- those are what, those are, there's layers of lies um, and, and we have to understand that uh, because we are dealing with the global war on terrorism, uh, with the right to intervene in countries invoking, and it's not only in the Middle East, it's in a, in a whole series of countries where, where the United States is intervening in Africa, in the Philippines, in, in, uh, in Thailand, and so on, uh, always under the pretext that uh, that uh, they're going after Islamic terrorists, etc. When we know that in fact the CIA are the architects of Al Qaeda, going back to the Soviet-Afghan War. So that uh, and 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 then we have statements emanating from the Pentagon, from Dick Cheney, and saying, I quote, uh, that a second 9/11 would be both. Uh, justification and an opportunity to go after known targets. I'm quoting a Pentagon document leaked to the Washington Post, and and, and they repeated it on numerous occasions. Yes, we would like to have a second 9/11, etc. Uh, we recall Operation Northwoods, which was also a, which was a secret uh, operation uh, of the of the Pentagon to invade Cuba by uh, by uh, planting bombs in Miami and creating quote a useful wave of indignation. So that when David Griffin, in his first book on 9/11, raises the issue of a new Pearl Harbor, that. Rationale is part, of, of, um, it's part of, uh, of the military agenda. Uh, it, it's interesting that General Tommy Franks, who led the invasion of Iraq, in, a, in an interview, I think it's 2003 interview, with uh, Cigaro Aficionado, it's a, it's a gentleman's magazine, and he, he uses the term mass casualty-producing event mass casualty producing event. And he insinuates, if you can look up the quotes, uh, he insinuates that a mass casualty producing event of the size and the nature of 9-11 might contribute to galvanizing uh, public support for the militarization of civilian institutions, which means justice, law, uh, law enforcement, and so on, so as to preserve democracy in America, etc., etc. So that this this comes from the hierarchy of the of the U.S. military. It's not a statement made by an individual. He's using concepts and slogans which are used behind closed doors. Mass casualty-producing event, uh, and so on, so forth. Uh, opportunity, justification, etc. Um, I I say this because uh, we are living, perhaps, the most serious economic and social crisis in modern history, uh, where uh, the United States and its indefectible British ally, but also NATO and Israel are involved in a war without borders, uh, extending the frontiers of U.S. influence around the world, but particularly in the Middle East, uh, and, and in a very real sense, this military agenda, combined also with an economic agenda, with a police state, threatens the future of humanity, particularly when you when you state in military documents, and that's why the work of David Ray Griffin is so important. In military documents, they said we should go after bin Laden with nuclear weapons, okay? And uh, no, I'm not joking, because I, I read this kind of stuff, or uh, a good case could be made. And then they say, well, of course, nuclear weapons are harmless to, to, to the surrounding civilian population, and they've been redefined. Now, if we look at, at Canada-US relations, the whole agenda of the SPP, of the North American Union, is also integrated into, into the war on terrorism, because we're protecting the continent against, so it's not only the United States. Uh, as Rumsfeld said, Northern Command extends from the Caribbean right up to the Canadian Arctic. and and He made that statement in 2002. Uh, I wrote on it uh, uh, more or less at that time, in 2003-2004, that this grants the United States the right to intervene militarily anywhere on land, sea, uh, of course, in there is under NORAD, but but uh, send in troops into Canada, into Mexico, into countries of the Caribbean under the terms of reference of Northern Command, and Northern Command has a mandate to to fight Bin Laden. Okay, so that uh, we 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 must understand that 9/11 is very crucial and because without 9/11, these guys are stuck. They don't have a justification for doing anything. In other words, if 9-11, the 9-11 truth movement uh, integrated into an anti-war movement um, could lead ultimately to uh, breaking the consensus uh, which pervades our society. Because the whole process, the whole justification for war, torture, police state, and so on would collapse like a deck of cards. And, and the, the criminals in the high office uh, would be revealed for what they are, and and that is why uh, David David Ray Griffin, who is a distinguished author, theologian, professor of philosophy, religion, uh, with more than thirty books, um, and uh, involved, uh, and, and and he told me that when 9-11 happened he dropped a lot of his other research. <laughs> and, and and the way this the way he is tackled he tackles this is not by uh, making accusations or by making statements which are not backed by fact. It is by confronting the officials' explanations which are both presented uh, by, the, by the US administration and the commission and so on, and the media, and in an utterly uh, factual uh, and investigative mode, he manages to refute uh, much of uh, official explanations that, that are presented to us on a day-to-day basis and which serve to justify far-reaching decisions like going to war and killing people and torturing people. And of course, you don't know whether they're terrorists before you actually torture them because, um, you know. So that's the logic. They said we have to torture them because they're terrorists, but we don't know that they're terrorists, and so on. And so that the approach that David Ray Griffin has taken is through careful investigation to refute the official story and narrative and confront the media and the U.S. Congress, and that's what he's done in his his last book, uh, uh, and uh, without further ado, I I would like to uh, welcome him to Canada and Quebec, Quebec and Canada, uh, and uh, the city of Montreal, and the, and the Saint-Saint-Pierre, uh, which has always uh, respected freedom of speech and debate under the auspices of of the Catholic Church. Um, So we would like to welcome our speaker tonight, David Ray Griffin.
0: You've just heard Canadian economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michelle Chosodovsky. Up next, Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's program, Did Muslims Attack the United States of America on 9-11? 21 Reasons Why the Official Story is False. This is Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Well, thank you very much, uh, Michelle. And uh, thank you all for coming out. As uh, he just pointed out, the effects of 9-11, that is, the effects of the belief in the official theory of 9-11... Have been far-reaching. One of the many effects beyond uh, the six or seven that he mentioned is that we have or at least have this tradition that you are innocent until proven guilty, but now Muslims around the world feel that they are guilty until proven innocent. The topic I'm going to address tonight is did Muslims attack the United States of America on 9-11? Because that that is the basis for most of these things. And certainly the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and the war that we probably would have had in Iran already if the one in Iraq had gone a little better from the administration's point of view. Uh, Most of what I will talk about tonight will be from my latest book, which is called 9-11 Contradictions, an Open Letter to Congress and the Press. Uh, A few of the items will be from the previous book, which is called uh, Debunking, 9-11 Debunking, An Answer to Popular Mechanics and Other Defenders of the Official Conspiracy Theory. Uh, So between those two, uh, uh, from those two come the, the material for tonight. Uh, but I've organized it in a a different way here. And I will try to go quite quickly, I have uh, another title for this would be 21 Reasons Why the Official Story is False. So I'm going to go through these pretty quickly just to give you an idea of what these reasons are, leading you to, uh, if you want to, read the books to get more detail. First of all, Osama bin Laden, uh, do we have any evidence that he was really responsible for 9-11? Of course, the whole story is based on that assumption. But, uh, shortly after 9-11, Colin Powell then the Secretary of State, uh, promised to work up a paper in which he would give this proof. The very next day, in the Rose Garden meeting with President Bush, he had to withdraw that pledge. And, uh, say, well, we do have all this evidence, but it's all classified. So I can't tell you now. I hope I can tell you in the future. Uh, Tony Blair thought that wasn't good enough. So he volunteered to write this document, and he did. And it had all this proof, except that on the very first page, it says, this does not support to provide evidence that would stand up in a court of law. So it was good enough to go to war, but not good enough to go to court. And all they needed was good enough to go to war. Um, A couple years ago, a man named Ed Haas, who has a website called the Muckraker Report, learned that if you go on the FBI website and look under Osama bin Laden, spell it with a U, Osama, you find that he's listed for several terrorist attacks, but not for 9-11. Very puzzled, he called up uh, Rex Toom, the head of investigative publicity for the FBI, and said, why? And Toom said, because the FBI has no hard evidence that bin Laden was responsible for 9-11. Uh, Claire Brown of uh, INN heard that, was intrigued, called up Toom and said, did you really say that? And uh, Toom said, that's exactly what I told Mr. Haas. Point number one. Number two, the whole story of these hijackers was, of course, they were devout Muslims, and so it was no problem for them to lose their lives on 9-11 because they were anxious to go to heaven. And uh, we even have this document uh, purportedly written by Muhammad Adah that said he was very anxious to to go to heaven, to be a martyr and go to heaven. Um, What were these guys like in their daily lives? Did they spend a lot of time on the, on the prayer rug and so on? No, they spent their time drinking, taking cocaine, going to strip clubs, and they seemed particularly fond of uh, lap dancers. Mohammed Atta lived for a couple months, early in 2001, with a stripper in uh, Venice, Florida, where he was um, taking uh, flight lessons. And uh, this was well known, certainly by the people right next door who <laughs> ran the apartment complex and rented the room to them. And it was in the local press, and yet if you read the FBI report about Mohammed Atta, you'll find that uh, he left Venice, and if you know Florida, that's on the, the uh, western side of Florida, and uh, went over to Miami on the eastern side and uh, never came back to the West at the end of 2000. And yet, everybody in Venice knows that Muhammad Adda was living with Amanda Keller from uh, February to, uh, to April. So, um, this idea that they were uh, devout Muslims is, is put in question. There's a famous story about them uh, Uh, drinking on September 7th at Shuckham's Bar in Miami in Hollywood, which is part of Miami. And uh, this story went around the world. If you look back at your newspapers, you'll see the stories about them uh, drinking. Muhammad Ali uh, drinking uh, orange juice and vodka. And uh, his his buddy drinking uh, rum and coke. And the bartender said they were wasted. And uh, pretty soon, however, this story started to change. And uh, uh, pretty soon it came that uh, Otto really wasn't uh, drinking vodka. He was just playing a video game. And uh, then somebody figured out, well, he had to be drinking something. So in the LA Times, we learned actually he was drinking uh, cranberry juice. (laughs) So they allowed the other guy to keep drinking, but uh, Otto, I mean, he's he's the real symbol here. He had to be a devout Muslim. If you read in the 9-11 Commission report, they they report that Ada had become a serious Muslim. They said even fanatically religious he had become. Third, we learned, didn't we, from all these cell phone calls from the flights, that the, the flights had been taken over by hijackers. Hijackers who were described as Middle Eastern, one of the people even said he he had a Muslim look <laughs> to it, um, and this was this was what really got the whole thing started. Um, you know, otherwise, how would have you known there were hijackers on the plane unless people from the plane had called and said these these guys are taking over the plane. They've got knives and Bart and said they had uh, box cutters, and uh, they had red bandanas. Um, somebody didn't know it was only Shia who wear the red bandanas, and Al-Qaeda, of course, is Sunni. But we, we have had people in our government who didn't know the difference between Sunni and Shia, and this might have something to do with that. But, uh, nevertheless, we, uh, we got all these stories. And uh, particularly Flight 93, one of your fellow uh, Canadians, Key Dudney, who used to write for Scientific America, did these experiments. And uh, he referred to uh, Flight 93 as the uh, cell phone flight. Am I right, Michelle? Uh, Was that your term or was that his? The cell phone flight for Flight 93. Uh, I I think
3: it probably was
2: his. (laughs) Okay, I didn't want to give him credit for for one of you because they both wrote on, on this. Um, Somehow it's Canadians who have taken the lead on the cell phone story. So now another Canadian, uh, Roland Morgan, uh, has written a manuscript that I hope gets published called uh, Voices. And uh, so we had uh, at least 13 calls from Flight 93 that were said to be cell phone calls. And uh, many, many news stories. Uh, Most of them would say, well, we learned what was going on in the flight because of these cell phone calls cell phone calls, and uh, they, they came from all four flights. You had passengers making cell phone calls from uh, uh, second, third, and fourth flights, so uh, 175, oh, yeah. 77, and 93, and then uh, uh, a flight attendant making a cell phone call from flight uh, 11, and, and this was in many ways the most important, this was Amy Sweeney. And she told uh, about the hijackers uh, killing people and uh, and all of this. And so that was uh, the first word about this that we had. Now, there was this little problem that Michelle mentioned, which is that uh, cell phones don't work very well in high altitudes. He learned that uh, if you went up in a single-engine plane and got much over 6,000 feet uh, it's very unlikely. You might get it up to 8,000 feet, maybe 10, but nothing. And then it's a the double-engine plane. You've got a little more insulation, um, about 2,000 feet lower. Uh, with an airliner, with all that insulation, um, most people report they go off at about 1,000 feet and certainly wouldn't get much uh, over 5,000, 6,000. Absolutely, as Michelle said, not over 10,000 feet. And yet these calls from Flight 93 were made when the plane was at uh, 31,000 or even uh, over 40,000 feet. So there was a lot of skepticism in the 9-11 Truth community about this and saying, hey, these calls could not have happened. So when the FBI put out its uh, report, uh, you know about the Musawi trial in 2006. Uh, Zacharias Musawi was called the 20th hijacker. And so, uh, he was the one guy they could convict for uh, at least planning to participate in uh, the 9-11 attacks. And, uh, you know, the fact that he was uh, schizophrenic uh, didn't, didn't hinder the, the process. I mean, that's the guy that you would have uh, hired to uh, participate in such a project, right? Um,
1: <laughs>
2: so, at this trial, it's very interesting, you can go on the government website, and uh, read these reports that they, the FBI turned in. This is when they had to present something in a court of law, where it tends to be frowned upon to uh, tell lies. You can get sent to prison for quite a long time for lying in a court of law. And so what did the FBI report say? Flight 93. There were 37 phone calls, 35 from onboard phones, two from cell phones. And those two were made at 958, they said, when the plane was down to 5,000 feet. That's still a little high, but at least arguable. So they just backed off all of those famous phone calls that had been reported hundreds of times as cell phone calls. The FBI, no they weren't, they were. They were. So how do you explain that? Well, some of the people, why did they, you know, why, who, who said they were cell phone calls? Well, the FBI interviewed people. And uh, they said, we we were called on cell phone. How do you know a cell phone? Well, they told us. Uh, my, you know, my daughter, my wife said, I borrowed my cell phone, from, I borrowed cell phone from my neighbor. And I'm calling you on the cell phone. So, some of them were told. Well, you could think memory is a funny thing, or maybe they misunderstood, or something like that. But what about Dina Burnett, who said she received four phone calls from her husband, Tom Burnett. And she knew they were from Tom because she looked on her caller ID, and there's Tom's cell phone number. So this couldn't be a mistake. It'd be very hard to misremember this. The FBI came that very day, interviewed her, and that's what she told the FBI. It's in the report, you can read the report. So how do you explain that Dina Burnett believes she got three or four, there was a little confusion on the number, but three or four cell phone calls, Um, and the FBI now says she didn't. So let's assume she really didn't. Why did she say? What would be the motive for saying? She went on national TV. This is a very well-known story in the United States. I don't know how well known it's up here, but uh, this little, you know, CBS morning show, all this. She even wrote a book uh, in 2006 and, and said these words. I, I know it was Tom because I saw his, caller, his, his cell phone number on my caller ID. Well, some of us have a theory that uh, there is this technology now. So cell phone technology couldn't have done this, but there is a technology known as voice morphing, which has been around uh, since uh, this new form of it since at least 1999, and also there are devices now you can order them on the internet where you can. It says you can not only fake the voice and it's so good you can fake your lover, uh, or and you can fake the the phone number. Uh, one of them is called a phone faker, and. Uh, So I think that's what happened. These people were called. They really believed. I have no reason to think Dina Burnett was either confused or lying. She was duped. And uh, if one person was duped, are you going to believe the rest of the story? This is one of those cases where you only need one absolutely clear-cut case.
0: You're listening to author and theologian Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's program... Did Muslims attack the United States of America on 9-11? 21 Reasons Why the Official Story is False. This is Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Now, I mentioned Amy Sweeney. Um, her story was written up. There was an FBI affidavit. The guy went and interviewed uh, Michael Woodward at the American uh, desk, and... Uh, the story was that Amy had called him on her cell phone, and that's what Michael Woodward told the FBI, so the FBI, Jim Lechner, wrote it up. Now, in 2004, when they uh, reported to the public, they had found a tape somehow in the Dallas American office. They didn't realize they had, and uh, on there it says that uh, she called on an air And how did they get a tape? Because Michael Woodward didn't take the call. So the new story was that he was receiving this call from, from Amy, and he was repeating word for word what Amy said to a woman in the office, Nancy Wyatt, who was on the phone to Dallas, and the guy down in Dallas was recording her call. So third hand, we got word for word what Amy Sweeney said, and she said, well, I got down behind the seat and I borrowed an airphone card. Now, what in the world is an airphone card? But she borrowed an airphone card from uh, another flight attendant and called on the airphone. So it was back. At, uh, this was a new revelation to me. So it was back in 2004. They changed it just in time to get the new story in the 9/11 Commission report. And I hadn't realized that because when they uh, the 9/11 Commission refers to flight 93. They say the passengers and the crew began making uh, airphone calls and cell phone calls. And so I thought that meant right then they started making cell phone calls. No, when you look at the document this was based on, the staff report, already in 2004 they said the only two calls were the one from C.C. Lyles and Edward Felt, both at 9.58, which were made on uh, uh, cell phones uh, when the plane was low enough for that to be possible. So you see how when they get in trouble, they just change the story. Now, there are records. If you make a cell phone call, there are records. It can be proved. If you make an onboard phone call from you know, this one of them's Verizon, the other one's Clairecom, there are records. So there should be no mystery about. You can't just say, oh well, you know, it was a cell phone. No, no, it was an airphone. It should be based on evidence. Now, this FBI report cites no evidence whatsoever. You just look, open up the document, and you see cell phone call for these two. On the others, you see, made from this place, that there's not a single document reported that you could send a FOIA report for and say, uh, show me the document, Tell me the evidence for this. OK, so this raises some questions. Were there really hijackers on the plane? Um, The other, the most famous call, of course, was the one from Barbara Olson to Ted Olson. Ted Olson was the uh, Solicitor General for the Department of Justice. He was very, very important. He was the guy who argued in front of the Supreme Court that the uh, Florida recount should be stopped. Because if it had gone on, Gore would have won. Think how different life would be. Uh, But he got the Supreme Court to stop the recount, and so Bush and Cheney became president and vice president, not necessarily in that order. (laughs) Um, So he's a very important guy. So he was appointed then Solicitor General for the Department of Justice. Uh, So he was the guy that argued for the Supreme Court that uh, Cheney didn't have to reveal who came to this secret energy meeting that occurred shortly before the uh, uh, invasion of Iraq. Uh, so on the morning of 9-11, he reported um, that uh, he had gotten a phone call from his wife, Barbara, who was on Flight 77, and that uh, all the passengers and uh, crew had been herded to the back of the plane, and uh, the hijackers were armed with knives and box cutters. Now, to show you how important this slide is, you've all heard they had box cutters, right? That was the only call that reported box cutters. None of the other calls mentioned box cutters. It was only, so this was the most important of all the calls uh, for establishing uh, what was going on there. Now, it was a pretty strange story. Here you had about um, almost 70 people on the plane, counting the crew. Captain and Coke, Captain. Also, she specifically said, "We're back there." Um, the captain uh, was a champion boxer, and uh, there were some other pretty good sized people on there. Can you imagine three rather small men? You got you got two up in the in the cabin flying the plane, presumably. Or let's say there was only one, just Hany Hanjur, and let's say we got four. So four rather small guys with knives and box cutters are holding off 67 people, one of them a champion boxer. So it's a pretty strange story anyway, but um, it gets worse. one problem was, um, what does she use, a cell phone or an earphone? And uh, Ted said he didn't know, and he, he went back and forth. He would tell one story and the other story. Finally settled on the phone. Then, uh, in 2006, somebody uh, in Germany in the 9-11 truth movement went on the website and said, I see, you know, wrote to America and said, I see your Boeing 757s, so that's what Flight 77 was, I don't have uh Airphones. Uh, oh, is that true? What about on 9-11? How well, other the people call out? The guy says, uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, we don't. The 767s do, they're not 757. And so he said the people had to use their cell phones. So there we're back to the problem of high altitude <laughs> cell phone calls. Then it gets worse when you get to the McSally report. Now this is just beyond belief. You get to the Messiah uh, the report, the FBI turned down. Yes. It does mention Barbara Olson when it gets to Flight 77. And here's what it says. Barbara Olson, one attempted call, unconnected, zero seconds. Now, Ted had said she called twice. They talked for about a minute each time. Should this have not have been a screaming headline in all of our newspapers, FBI says story told by former Department of Justice <laughs> solicitor general. See, the FBI is part of the Department of Justice. So here's the FBI saying that the former head guy, second head guy, his story, it's not true. It didn't happen. Have you seen the new um, video by the uh, Freebies? Take a, take off on the on the Bee Gees, yeah. staying alive. Yeah. And it's called 9-11's Lie, and it's just really well done. Well, I had said this when we were over in uh, the European Parliament uh, screening this new film put out by the Italian member of uh, European Parliament, uh, Chiesa. Gioletto Chiesa. And uh, evidently they saw that because it got on YouTube. And I had said, and so in that film, there's the Washington Post with the screaming headline about uh, FBI says... Uh, former, (laughs) so I was very happy about that. (laughs) Sometimes, something you do makes a little difference. So isn't this very, very strange? So you just, you know, you launch a worldwide war on terror. I mean, we're talking serious stuff here, about uh, six to seven million people in Afghanistan have died because of the invasion. You know, between starvation and all sorts of, of reason, That's what the go on, uh, some of the counts are. In Iraq, uh, probably the best count is uh, 1.2 uh, million Iraqis, civilians, who have died. So we're talking about very serious stuff. This war was launched in large part on the basis of Barbara Olson's call. You know, she was this very well-known commentator on CNN. And she was beloved by the uh, by the right because she was always attacking uh, Hillary Clinton, and uh, you know they, they 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 really hated Hillary in those days. They like her a little bit now. But uh, uh, she was very very well known. And so the idea that these Muslims had killed sweet blonde Barbara. I mean I, I mean to I mean to focus on the race racial implications here. This So many people said they signed up for the war in Iraq to get even with the Iraqis for 9-11. Now, you know, they've admitted now no evidence whatsoever that Saddam was involved. But they sold that with innuendo and sometimes coming right out and saying it, that Saddam was involved. It was a ludicrous idea that he be involved with Osama bin Laden, but they sold it. And now, after all of that, they just turn around and say, that didn't really happen. And we're just supposed to not say a word. And thus far, our mainstream media has not said a word. That was 2006, this was published.
0: You're listening to author and theologian, Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's program, Did Muslims Attack the United States of America on 9-11? Twenty-one reasons why the official story is false. This is part one. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Okay. All the other evidence was fabricated too. You know all the photographs of them in airports. There was uh, uh, there were passports that were found at the crash sites. Now again, if it weren't so tragic, it would be hilarious. Uh, World Trade Center. So the idea was, they they told us this passport of uh, Sukhami, who was on uh, Flight 11, the one that hit the North Tower. They found it the next day under, you know, ground zero. So imagine this. You've got your passport in your pocket. You fly into a a building. There's a huge fireball. And then the building, an hour, an hour and a half, about this night, 101 minutes later, of collapses. And everything is pulverized. The computers, the desks, everything except the steel is pulverized into dust. But Tsukami's passport is back.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, the press did say something here. One British paper said, you know, even the most fervent believer in the war on terror would have to question the feasibility of this. And uh, so they changed the story. And they said, uh, actually they found it before the North Tower collapsed. So really all it had to do was somehow pop out of the airplane and survive the fire and float down to the ground. Flight 93. you know, there, there were, everybody gets to the, flight, the the crash site, and says, where's the plane? There's no plane. Uh, the official story was that uh, the hijackers, when the heroic passengers tried to take over the flight, turned the plane down, so they were going down at 45 degrees at 580 miles an hour, and they hit that soft Pennsylvania soil, and the plane went clear into the ground so that not even the tail was showing. I'm not making this up. Somebody was making it up, but it's not me. It um, except they found the pilot's passport. And they found one of these red bandanas, absolutely clean, on the ground. You know, when people talk about don't-believe-loony conspiracy theories about (laughs) 9-11, the most decisive evidence was Otta's luggage. You know the story. It's on the first page of... uh, some of you know the story. It's on the first page of the 9-11 Commission Report. Talk about Otta and uh, a guy named Al Omari. Now, this is very strange, because Otto never went anywhere without Marwan al shahi who was probably his bodyguard. But somehow on this trip, he went with a different guy. And so that's suspicious in and of itself. But anyway, that was the story, that Otto was already in Boston. And you know, Otto is the purported uh, pilot of Flight 11. So it's pretty important that he be there on the morning of September 11th to get on Flight 11 and he was already in Boston on the 10th. Nevertheless, he rented a car, a blue, um, a blue Nissan, and, uh, and he and Almari drove up to Portland, Maine, stayed overnight, comfort in, and then got up very early the next morning to catch the commuter flight that left at six o'clock back down to Boston. Now, what if that commuter flight had been 45 minutes late? Autumn was not only the pilot of Flight 11, he was the ringleader of the whole operation. So they probably would have had to call up the whole operation that they'd been planning, allegedly, for two years, um, just because they needed to go to Portland for something. Or, you know, maybe one last fling. uh, (laughs) There was an extra good lap dancer up in Portland, I don't know. (laughs) But uh, uh, that's what they did. Um, And you you read that, all in, so, but uh, the 9-11 Commission admits we couldn't find any reason why they did it. The FBI (laughs) admits we can't find any reason why they did this. But it turned out to be a good thing they did do it, because um, after the tower was hit, somebody looks over there and says, hey, look at that luggage, that's got Mohammed Adda's name on it, let's open it up and see what's in there. (laughs) So they look it up and they find that will I mentioned before. They find uh, flight instructions for flying, you know, 757s and 767s. They find uh, Ada, uh you know, Quran uh, and uh, words of encouragement to the other hijackers and, and so on. Now, this was kind of a strange story too. Um, if you're going to fly your plane... See, the idea was that Ada's luggage didn't make the flight. And that's why they found it there, because he took that commuter flight and somehow luggage didn't make it. Um, if you're going to fly a plane into a building, would you take your will with you? Probably not. <laughs> but that was the idea that he did. And this became the decisive evidence, because they were already suspecting. You know, George Tenet is Claire clairvoyant. And uh, as soon as this happened, he said, boy, that just sounds like al-Qaeda. This got al-Qaeda's fingerprints all over But, you know, that was just male intuition, and you know how (laughs) trustworthy that is. (laughs) Um, And so they needed proof. Well, the luggage was the proof, so that was when they knew it was al-Qaeda, because there was a confession. And uh, it's interesting, however, if you go back to September 12th, and read the newspapers? Here's the story you will read. Um, Mohammed Ali's luggage was found in a white Mitsubishi in Logan parking lot in Boston. Two guys named uh, Bukhari, they assumed they were brothers, had rented a blue Nissan and driven up to Portland, stayed overnight in the Comfort Inn, and then took the six o'clock commuter flight back down in time to uh, catch the flight. It wasn't until September 14th, 15th, well September 14th, they started changing the story. Because they found a little problem. The Bukharis hadn't died on 9-11. One was still alive and the other one had died a year before. <laughs> so somebody at the FBI had flunked basic research. Uh, <laughs> uh, so they just changed the story. And so the Bukharis just dropped away. The white Mitsubishi just dropped away after going all around the world. I mean, these were stories in Australia, in England, in... In in Sweden, everywhere, talked about the white Mitsubishi where Otto's treasure trove of information is found. Then it just disappears. And now everybody knows Otto went to Portland. But uh, Otto didn't actually go to Portland until September, I think 16th or 17th was when the story, the final version of the story finally got uh, printed by the very trustworthy Washington Post. So uh, here again, you see they're just, they, they make it not only make it up, if it doesn't work out, they just make up a, a new story. Um, now, you might say, and this is always quoted, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So even though there's no evidence that there were any hijackers on the plane, that doesn't prove they weren't there. You can't prove they weren't on there. Well, actually, we do have uh, evidence Of absence. Pilots on these airplanes, most airplanes, certainly these, have a little box for squawking what they call a hijack code. All you have to do is turn some knobs and it's a universal hijack code, 7500. Takes about two to three seconds to do that. Now, on these uh, flights, the idea was, they were told that uh, the hijackers banged their way into the, the uh, uh, cabin. And uh, on Flight 93, there, there was a lot of banging going on. So there was more than two or three seconds. And one of the pilots on Flight 11 even got you know, posthumous Medal for heroic, for, for turning a, a switch that led a, allowed us to hear Mohammed Atta's uh, voice. And yet, all eight pilots—the four pilots and the four co-pilots—none of them turned these buttons to uh, to squawk the hijack code. Now, uh, you know Sherlock Holmes saying story about Silver Blaze and uh, uh, the dog that didn't bark. The story was that uh, Silver Blaze was a champion racehorse, and then just before a big race, he disappears. And so the local uh, detective, his theory is that an intruder came in and uh, stole silver plates. Well, Sherlock Holmes says, hmm, there's a curious thing about what the dog did that night. And the local inspector says, uh, well, what do you mean? The dog didn't do anything. That's the curious thing. If an intruder had come in, the dog would have barked. And that's how he solved the mystery. There was no intruder in the planes. The pilots that didn't squawk proved that there were no intruders into the cabins. So we do have evidence of absence. Um, that, by the way, is not in any of these books. That'll be in a future book. <laughs> but it's such a good story. I wanted to throw it out. <laughs>
0: You've been listening to author and theologian Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show has been Did Muslims Attack the United States of America on 9-11? 21 Reasons Why the Official Story is False. This has been Part 1. Dr. Griffin's most recent books are Debunking 9-11 Debunking, An Answer to Popular Mechanics and Other Defenders of the Official Conspiracy Theory, and 9-11 Contradictions, an open letter to Congress and the press. Dr. Griffin's books are available at Amazon.com. Visit Michelle Chosadovsky's website at www.globalresearch.ca. Audio for today's program was provided by Lynn Gary, producer of Unwelcome Guests, and by Montreal 9-11 Truth. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at blfalkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, www.gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction.
1: revolution, which is the evolution of the mind. If you see, then Knife, trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what this side just down. for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?